Well, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14, we're looking at verses 12 through 20. And the title of our sermon is The the Grapes of Wrath. Probably you're familiar with that title because of a novel, a very good novel, in fact, but it's my favorite one by John Steinbeck. Um, I think he he does a great job of portraying the the consequences of the suffering that people endured during the Dust Bowl migration. Um, he his his metaphor was that the the suffering was building in them, their experience of of suffering was building in them a fury of wrath that would eventually explode. It was sort of a a metaphorical warning, right? That that if you oppress people, and in this case, these individuals, these families, endured a great deal of oppression, um, that he was suggesting that anger and hatred are the natural byproduct of those experiences, right? And so he he certainly has has a point, and we can you know argue about the details another time. But what I do want to make clear is that he was not using the metaphor in the way that Scripture used it. Um, He got the concept of ripened grapes and wrath from this passage, but but what caused those grapes to ripen was not oppression. It's the rebellion of creation against the Creator that has hastened the arrival of the final harvest. And the wrath that is about to be unleashed is not the anger of man, but of God. And so this comes at the close of another cycle that has covered the whole gospel age. As we've said throughout our study of Revelation, we don't believe it's just one chronological timeline of future events, but that it's a cycle repeating itself over and over um, throughout Revelation uh, that covers the gospel age, the time of Christ's ascension, essentially, to the time of um, uh, his return. So we would call that the gospel age. And so in the first three chapters of Revelation, we saw the the seven letters that were sent to the churches there with the constant reminder to each church to persevere, to endure through the uh, times of trial and tribulation, and that they will be rewarded uh, with with their perseverance, right, for their perseverance. Um, And then in chapters four through seven, you had the, the primary thing taking place there is this opening of seven seals. And at the end of that, in chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, you have a description of the, the final judgment. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals of, and the riches, uh, or sorry, and the rich and powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Right, so you have this description of terror as the wrath of the Lamb is, uh, is about to be poured out. And, and then you have the same thing in the next section. In chapters 8 through 11, you have the depiction of final judgment at the very end of that cycle as well, with the um, uh, verses, uh, or sorry, eleven eighteen. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, 
and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Well, now we come to another cycle, the fourth cycle, and there's description of spiritual conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that we've described in chapters 12, moving up to 14. And now we come to the end of this cycle, a- another description of the final judgment. So the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet have successfully promoted this counterfeit worship that's been gathering more and more people, and, and it's ripening fast for the day of the great harvest. But before we get to that last section, I do need to cover verses 12 and 13. It was something I had planned on doing last week. I think it fits with that section and in terms of the, the terror and the comfort of the gospel. We talked a lot about the, the terror portion of that, which I think is, is sort of a reaction to modern, um, you know, preachers who tend to minimize the idea of terror and judgment. Um, And so I I did not want to truncate that portion. But when we get to 12 and 13, which talks about the comfort and the blessing of dying in the Lord, uh, we didn't get a chance to to talk about those verses. So we'll begin with with that, and I'll reread verses 12 uh, through the end of this chapter. Um, But before we do so, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for revelation. We thank you for the vision that it gives us that is um, comforting to the believer, but it is also and should be terrifying to those who are not united to Christ by faith. Lord, it should be a warning for us as well as believers to declare and proclaim the gospel with every opportunity. Lord, to, to be a witness and a light in darkness. Lord, we know that your spirit will use us and give us the words to say when we have those opportunities. So Lord, help us to be faithful and available to be used by you. And Lord, help us now to, um, to focus, to give our attention fully to your word and to allow you to speak, to give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us hearts that are, are softened to respond in obedience to the truth that you proclaim. And may you be glorified. And we ask all things in Christ's name. Amen. So read with me Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, through the end of the chapter. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle, And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. 
And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, if you're following along in your outline, the first point I want us to look at is verses 12 and 13, a promise of blessing, a promise of blessing. Again, and I didn't read, I didn't go back and read the section prior to this, but you had the terrifying reality being described of of what awaits those who worship the beast. Um, if, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, verse 10 says, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. A terrifying image there, a terrifying reality that awaits those who worship the beast. Uh, and the, va- the vision then transitions to the eternal reward. Right? What, what is an eternal restlessness for the unbeliever is, is the eternal rest of true believers, those who refuse to, to worship the beast, but instead worship God through Christ. They share in his inheritance. And so we should appreciate this. We should enjoy this vision here of the inheritance that awaits. Right? The saints are, are called to endure in their Christian faith. Um, they are the saints who keep the commandments of God because they've been given the spirit of God. Right, who enables them to honor God in their lives. And this vision of, of the coming judgment of unbelievers actually helps and supports the saints in their perseverance as well. Right, in due time, they will see God's name vindicated, and they will enter into their own rest. Right, they'll no longer experience persecution. And so John was commanded to write down the blessing of dying in the Lord. Verse 13 here, and dying in the Lord is a blessing for two reasons. One, it brings rest, but it also brings reward. Rather than experiencing everlasting torment and restlessness, saints enter into their everlasting joy and rest. Rest is related here to their labors as well as it's connected to their deeds. And so let's let's think about that for a minute here. Uh, they'll finally enjoy true rest and that's the the first element here and it's in direct response or it's it's a direct contrast to what the unbelievers experience which is a restlessness the idea is that those activities that exhaust believers now are no longer needed or required in heaven endurance will be unnecessary we won't hear exhortations to endure and persevere in heaven We'll have arrived at our true and final rest. You have fought the good fight. You have finished the race. You have kept the faith. And so you'll receive the crown of life. But what does the the Spirit mean here by promising that their deeds will follow them? Well, this, I too, I believe, is also connected to their enjoyment of their rest. 
And it seems to indicate that a variety of rewards will be given to believers based upon their good works. Our works in no way merit salvation. They don't go before us, right, to, to pave the way for eternal life. They follow us into eternal life. They're, they're rewards as a response to the finished work of Christ, right? Only, only Christ could accomplish or satisfy the righteous demands of the law. And no one will be unsatisfied with their rewards in heaven. We will all be filled to capacity, right? As if, it, it, it's not as if one is going to be, we're going to be envious of one another. Like, well, they've got more rewards than, I've, than I have. No, there's going to be complete satisfaction in heaven. But Rick Phillips says this, our works earn not the reward of eternal life, but rather rewards in eternal life. And so these are the treasures of heaven that we should be living for rather than the decaying treasures of this world. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 20, uh, while all believers will shine like stars in glory, some stars will shine brighter. And, and if that trips you up, listen, this is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 41 and 42. There is one glory of the sun, there is another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, uh, what is raised, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. So in the same way that there's a difference in brightness of heavenly beings, the, the sun, the moon, and the stars, there will be a difference in the brightness of the rewards of the saints. The, the, it, it, it will be the same in the resurrection. Jesus' own parables, they speak of varying levels of rewards, several talents being given and more being given in response to their good works. So there's a personal reward for personal labor that is given in unequal measures to all the elect. That's promised in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8. And we know that everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And then in, in, in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, we read this, verse 14. Uh, I'm not quoting here, but it says, anyone whose, whose work survives fire survives this test by fire from God, that they will receive a reward, and those whose work is burned up will still be saved, but as through fire. In other words, if these are works, if, if the reward is simply heaven, if the reward is simply eternal life that we're all going to enjoy, and we all have an equal portion in that inheritance, then we would all be getting through as if just through fire, Right? All of our works would be burned up so that there would be no, no reward left. We would all be in that last category. But instead it says some will have works that survive the test, that will follow them. It will be the deeds that follow them into eternity. Right? This is the, the reward that, that we can expect to receive. So the deeds that follow them are the sincere works that survive the test of fire that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 
So we experience encouragement, we experience comfort and peace in life because of our faith. Um, but the greatest evidence of the superior comfort that believers enjoy is really found in death. What proves to be a terrifying uh, experience for the unbeliever is filled with peace for the believer. And, and everyone has, has different experiences, but, but the believer can, can enter into that day with confidence, right? With resting in the Lord. The day of believers is, uh, the death of believers is precious in the sight of the Lord, according to Psalm 116, verse 15. And so when they depart from their body, they are immediately at home with the Lord. This is only true of those who die in the Lord. All right, eternal joy is offered to those who come to the Lord in faith. And so your present suffering, your present labor and deeds of faith will only increase your enjoyment of rest and rewards for all eternity. And so those who respond to the free invitation of the gospel in this life will then be gathered in as the grain of harvest. And that's what we see in this second section, verses 14 through 16. It's the grain of harvest. Now, it doesn't mention grain explicitly, but I'll, I'll point out that in a moment, why we, we know that's what's taking place here. John sees one like a son of man, seated on a cloud, and he's wearing a golden crown, carrying a sickle. And the description here reminds us of the Son of Man who's been, who was described, the vision of the Son of Man that was described in chapter 1. Verses 7 and 13, you have parallel descriptions here. And so this is Jesus, right? He's prepared for judgment. He referred to himself in the Gospels 79 times as the Son of Man. So when you read Son of Man, it's inevitable that the original audience would have assumed we're talking about Jesus here. Saints are expected to anticipate his return in the same way that he ascended. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, we see him ascending with the clouds, and now we see him returning with the clouds. And the, the language here of harvest is generally one of a, po it's a positive picture in Scripture. Right? It's not always positive, but it oftentimes is. And so it's a, it's a celebration of God's provision, and the praise of his goodness, it was frequently used metaphorically. Right? It was used to speak of, uh, or uh, to challenge more laborers to enter into the harvest, right? Speaking of, of evangelism. Um, it's used metaphorically as well of the, the reaping of rewards after sowing good in Galatians chapter 6, 9. So there are two harvests described in this passage. Verses 14 through 16 describes the ripening of grain, which is positive. And then you have, in verses 17 through 20, the ripening of grapes that are gathered and then trampled in the second harvest. And so the first harvest is positive. The second harvest is negative. The grain harvest is just one stage. It's reaping. It's gathering in. The grape harvest is a gathering and throwing into the wine press and then a trampling of the wine press. That's a, that two-stage process, which then is indicating and implying judgment. So you have one stage in the first harvest, two stages in the second harvest. And I think those, those differences 
mean that we should interpret them as two different harvests, two different things taking place. A lot of, some commentators try to argue that this is one harvest and it's just looking at it from two different angles. But I think the language here of the harvest requires that we separate them. But in this first harvest, it says in verse 15, another angel comes out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. And so when this angel comes out of the temple and informs the one seated on a cloud that the harvest is ripe for reaping, that language there for fully ripe is zereno, and it's a, a reference to grain that has dried out. It's sufficiently, adequately dried out. It's ready for harvest. And this is a different term than the one that's found in verse 18 for the grapes that have ripened. That's akmadzo. Two different terms, even though our English translates it the same. One is referring to grain that's been dried out. The other is referring to grapes that are really overripe. They're over. They're ready to be cut down. <coughs> and so some have questioned this first, uh, this first harvest, or at least the, the recognition of the Son of Man as being Jesus, really based upon the idea that this angel comes out from the temple and gives him a command gives him instruction. Either it, it says the angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle. Right, so there's this command that's given to the son of man, the one seated on the cloud, and they say that's inappropriate. If that's Jesus, then this angel should not be commanding Jesus to do anything. But there is no indication here that the angel has authority over Christ. And angels, whenever we find them, in Scripture, they're, they're not doing an announcement or a command out of their own will. They're not just kind of coming up with their own idea here and, and instructing people to do things. They are divine messengers. So this angel is declaring a message from God the Father to God the Son. The angel's announcing the Father's will for the Son to begin the final harvest. And this is consistent with what Jesus said, right? That he doesn't know the day or the hour of his return. He told his disciples that in Mark 13, verse 32. So the illustration here is one of the Son of Man seated on a cloud, looking down upon his creation, anticipating the day when he can gather up his saints. Right? He's anticipating the moment when he'll gather up his people. And so he does so in verse 16 with a swift swing of his sickle. He reaps the whole earth. Again, Jesus doesn't know the timing of his return. He voluntarily does not know the timing, but he waits with patience to gather up his bride. Right? His voluntary lack of knowledge on this emphasizes our own need to remain ready at all times. How we should heed the warning of Christ's parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, where there were five foolish virgin, virgins who, who brought their lamp but did not bring enough oil to supply that lamp so it could continue to be lit. And when they depart to go and fetch more oil, the Son of Man comes and returns, and they're locked out from the, uh, from the feast. And we, we should always be ready for his return, always be anticipating it. And I think this fits as well with this idea of having patient endurance as we await his return. This idea of a harvest language, it implies there is plowing to be done. There is planting, 
There's watering and fertilizing and cultivating and pruning. And we all have to do various tasks at various times, right? Who wants to do the fertilizing? Right? No one wants to do that for a long, lengthy period of time, but it implies, right, this, this patient endurance, this trusting that, that is extended until Christ returns. So these, these activities, they don't yield quick results. We're not throwing miracle grow on the church, but they reward the patient laborer. And so like Paul, we, we do long for that day of rest. In fact, we, we, we want to be there as he says in Philippians 1.23. Uh, it would be far better to be there. But until then, we hold fast to the word of life so that the labor is not in vain. Right? We hold fast to God's truth. We hold fast to his gospel. We continue to fill our minds with these things, with these promises, so that we might persevere. Well, the second harvest is not so encouraging. Right, the second harvest refers to unbelievers as the grapes of wrath. And another angel ex- ex- exits the, the heavenly temple with a sickle in verse 17. And angels assisted in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were involved in the judgment of Egypt and Syria. Uh, they repeatedly served God by bringing judgment upon Israel. You'll remember an angel was involved in uh, the Uh, the punishment of Israel after they worshiped the golden calf. Um, You have the same thing, an angel involved in the judgment that was brought upon Israel after David uh, took an unauthorized census. An angel struck down Herod Antipas in Acts chapter 12, verse 23. So God utilizes angels in warning and announcing as well as enacting the final judgment. And this is typical of the way he operates. He uses his agents of judgment are these angels. And Jesus repeatedly promised this in the Gospels. Uh, in Matthew 13, Matthew 16, and Mark 8, they all reference the angel's role in the judgment of the final day. So another angel comes from the altar in verse 18. And John indicates that it's a a familiar angel, one who had authority over the fire. This was the fire that was on the the altar. Uh, So this is the angel who received the smoke of incense that represented the prayer of the saints. That was described in chapter 6. And it's the same angel who takes the fire from that altar and hurls it upon the earth in chapter 8, verses 3 through 5. So this angel now informs that previous angel to cut down the cluster of grapes. They've become ripe. And it's the same language that you read in Joel chapter 3, verse 13, which points forward to this day of wrath, mentioning a ripe harvest, the reaping with the sickle, as well as the wine press. So all of this language comes from Joel. And there, as well as here, the context is clearly one of judgment upon evil. It's judgment upon the enemies of the gospel. An ancient wine press was typically made of rock or brick, and at the top, or, or, or uh, there would be kind of a large basin or trough where all of the grapes would be thrown. And then there would be channels coming down, uh, flowing down to lower basins. And the people would trample the grapes from the top, and then that juice would flow down to the lower basins where then it would be collected into various vessels. 
So this portrays the, the terrifying vision of God's wrath. And it's reminiscent of, of the description in Isaiah chapter 63, uh, verses 3 and 4, where he says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their life blood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. So graphic description there of God's wrath being poured out as if, a, some, as if God is trampling upon his enemies and sending their blood as a, as a river. Well, Revelation describes it as blood flowing from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Well, before we describe that, the, just like the, uh, the one, the Son of Man seated on a cloud, Christ who swung the sickle and gathered the grain, this angel does the same thing, swings the sickle across the earth and gathers the grape harvest of the earth and throws them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And so as the, the winepress is trodden, it's always, in the Old Testament, any time a winepress is being trodden, it's a description of judgment. A river of blood pours from the winepress that's roughly four feet high and 184 miles long. And some people try to estimate how many fluid ounces of blood that is and how many individuals have lived on the planet and try to figure out, well, that basically means everyone who's ever lived. Or it's the whole world. The square, it's the square of four times the square of 10. It's the square of four being the earth and the square of 10 being the, to, uh, the number four totality. So blood then flows in every direction and it covers every square inch of the world. This is the punishment that every sin deserves. Right? And if we shared God's revulsion for sin, we would not be so taken aback by the idea of his wrath. And even a single sin against a perfectly holy God is deserving of his eternal punishment. And God deals with sin at two times in two locations. His wrath for sin was poured out upon his son on the hill of Calvary. And it will be poured out for all eternity upon those in hell. This is the only places where his wrath is being poured out in full. And the world seems ripe for harvest. And we must always be ready for this day to come. But if you're an unbeliever, there is no better time than now to repent. And to repent before the day of the great harvest of the earth arrives. That repentance is available now, but that last day will be filled with a sovereign display of God's power in judgment. And it will be too late. See, those who refuse to repent and turn to Christ will be gathered up and thrown into the wine press. They'll be trampled, it says, outside the city. But here's the thing. Jesus was already suffering on the cross outside the gate of the city. The same language there in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. Judgment has already occurred there for all who are united to Christ in his death. Jesus was 
crucified outside the city, bearing the curse and shame of our sin. So Philip Hughes says it was there that he gave himself to be trodden in the great winepress of the wrath of God, bearing our sin and absorbing their punishment so that we might be clothed with his pure and holy righteousness. Jesus was cast outside the city. He was trampled by the wrath of God on behalf of all who place their faith in him. And so we're enabled now to heed the warning, to repent, to persevere because Christ took our place on the cross, because Christ bore the wrath of God on our behalf. And so because we died with him, we can now live for him and we can look forward to the rewards of our eternal rest. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage that both warns and promises. That it's a, it's a warning to those unbelievers who have not repented, who have not turned to Christ, and it's a promise of blessing, of tremendous blessing to those who have submitted to Christ, who have turned away from their sin and turned to Christ and who walk in, a, in faith and obedience. Lord, we do that because you have enabled us. We do that because you've given us your spirit. We do that out of gratitude for what Christ has done for us. We know that we do not merit our salvation by anything we do. Lord, we don't pave the way for our salvation. That's only done and accomplished by Christ. Yet because of what Christ has done, out of gratitude and out of love for him, we respond in obedience. Lord, and we proclaim this message to all who would hear. We proclaim the the message of, of judgment that is coming, the day of harvest that awaits. Lord, and it will be a day of rejoicing for those who are gathered up and united with, with Christ, unhindered by sin anymore but it will be a day of terror for those who do not know him, those who have rejected him, those who have worshipped the beast in his image, or those who have gone the way of this world. And yet, Lord, this day has not arrived yet, and so we know that repentance is still available. And so for anyone who has not turned to you, Lord, may they do so now. May they place their faith in Christ alone. May they repent of their sins. And may they find in him a faithful Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand our hymn of response to the preaching of God's word is His mercy is more. What love.